there and welcome once again to Till Dice Do Us Part. I'm Elsa. And I'm George. And we're here to start Series 2 of our RPG podcast with a whole new run of gaming gabbing, nerdy nattering, dicey discourse and monstrous meandering. We took a little hiatus while George was recuperating from his battle wounds at the end of Series 1. I've got new scars in my back. It's like a scabby tramp stamp. But we're back again to our fortnightly schedule, so you can expect every other Friday to see a new episode available. We kept ourselves busy in our absence. We've been running some one-off games with our regular group in between full campaigns. We've picked up a few new gaming books. We've written space above and beyond fan fiction from our hospital bed. That was only you, George, and you're not reading it on the podcast. Oh, man! I don't get to do the history of dice. I don't get to read my Space Above and Beyond fan fiction. This is truly the darkest timeline. What you will find on the podcast is those same sections that made the first 20 episodes enjoyable. We've got introductions to RPG systems that we think you should give a go and outline their advantages and disadvantages. We've got world-building advice to help you design interesting settings for your games. We've got letters from listeners who are having problems in games they're playing or running that we'll try and answer. And of course, our quizzes on various gaming topics which you can play along with at home and see if you can equal or even beat our scores. If you're just joining us for the first time, George and I are a real-life, long-term couple from Glasgow in Scotland and we write, perform and edit the show all by ourselves. Yeah, although we do have a goblin that handles the social media. Oh yeah, of course, Twike. But apart from Twike, the social goblin... And the mailer demon. Apart from Twike and the mailer demon... And Mrs Shawnee, who does her HR. And Toppy, she helps out with some of the narration. Technically, there's... Uh, Apart from all of those, it's a two-person show. Maybe we should try getting on, like, human guests. Like, for variety. Anyway, Ailsa, why don't you tell people our running order for episode 21? Well, since it's the end of October, we're returning with a spooky Halloween theme. And we're starting things off with an elevator pitch for a game of humorous horror. And while it's very recent, it's a game which has maybe just a little bit of an older game's DNA in it. Then we have one of our quizzes, as I ask Ilsa to identify whether a given title really is an RPG product or not. Let's see if Ilsa, and all of you, can puzzle out the terrifying truths from the frightful fakes. All of that, and there's also a word from our completely real sponsor. Another podcast that puts the fun into flensing with its stories of dark history. And the accent is just as flawless as all the other characters that appear on this podcast. So, for the first time in a while, I get to say the magic words that kickstart proceedings. <clears throat> well then, on with the show. Right, let's get this Halloween elevator pitch going with a spooky imagination. Okay, Ilsa, let's get spooky. So, picture the scene. It's a cold and crisp October evening, and you're in your house, trying to watch television after a long day at work. The wind is blowing outside, and the inky blackness of an autumn night swallows up any view of your street. But you're nice and cosy indoors on your couch, hiding under a big blanket while you curl up in front of your favourite Netflix comfort watch. I wish Netflix had space above beyond, because if so, this would be perfect. But the picture 
picture is all crackly and the sound is all wrong. It sounds like the wrong audio file is coming through with your picture. You try turning it off and on, but nothing changes. There's this strange voice talking, a hoarse sounding person who sounds like they're chanting demonic words. But really rolling their R's while they do it. Rolling their R's? Oh no! Your TV is haunted by Scottish ghosts! They must have been summoned by a Ouija board! A Ouija board? Sorry, am I being menaced by a pun? They're flying out the TV screen now and circling your room, talking loudly about which football team they support, whether their money is legal tender, and if anyone remembers going to Starry Starry Night when they were a student. Oh god, it's West End Ouija ghosts. I'd better deal with this before they gentrify the place. In a panic, you run out of the room and go out the front door. You're standing in your street, cold and terrified. Your home is compromised. Spectres are loose. Dogs and cats living together! You rack your brains and you remember the advert that plays on television for a service that deals with this exact problem. George, you get your mobile phone out. Who you gonna call? Hello, welcome to Ghostbusters International, home of the Ghostbusters. My name's Mrs. Shawnee. How can I help you? Hello, I... Wait, Mrs. Shawnee, what are you... You work in our HR department, not for Ghostbusters. Ah, you must be thinking of the other Mrs. Shawnee, darling. Yeah, she works in HR, but I'm a receptionist here at Ghostbusters International Glasgow branch. Oh, okay. You two related then? No. So, I I think we can guess what sort of game we're doing today. Yes, we are doing a spoopy game. In fact, we are doing Spooktacular. That was written by Ewan Clooney and Amy Veers. It was published just a few years ago, 2018, by Zeruki Zeri Games. Now, Ewan Clooney was also the writer of Thrash, which uh, is a fighting game that we've used before. It's inspired by Street Fighter and we've used it to play Street Fighter. And also the English translation of Maid, which I believe was the first professional translation of a Japanese role-playing game into English. But we're not talking about those games, we're talking about Spooktacular, which is interesting because it is a retro clone. Now for those of you not familiar with that term, that means it is a game designed specifically to mimic a previously published but now out-of-print game possibly with some minor changes, but to basically bring that game back to life. Yeah, the out-of-print game that it is recreating is, of course, the Ghostbusters role-playing game, originally published by West End Games, first released in 1986. The Ghostbusters role-playing game was written by three people, all with quite an impressive track record. There's Sandy Peterson, who wrote Call of Cthulhu in RuneQuest. There's Lynn Willis, who wrote a lot of books for Call of Cthulhu. And there's Greg Stafford, who wrote Pendragon, which we mentioned back in episode two. Yep, episode two. Although the game was released by West End Games, these three authors are better known for working with Chaosium, because that's who designed the game and West End Games published it. I mean, this was a licensed game, based, of course, on the famous Columbia Pictures film franchise. The first Ghostbusters movie, of course, came out in 1984, 
there was a sequel in 1989. It was rebooted in 2016. And Ghostbusters Afterlife is due out in cinemas in November, so possibly by the time you're listening to this. We own copies of both editions of Ghostbusters. There was a Ghostbusters in 1986 and Ghostbusters International, a revised edition a few years later. And we got them in our local gaming shop secondhand bin for about five quid each. Yeah, I mean, I had a quick look on eBay while we're researching this piece. Um, you can't get that game these days for much less than 80 notes. It, it was a long time ago. I got these like 2004, 2005 when yeah. nobody cared. And it's such a shame because the box is just phenomenal. The, the, the box comes with Ghostbusters logo dice, which are obviously amazing. It has in-universe forms to photocopy. So like, um, like EPA permits and employee contracts that you can give out to your players. And there's some cutout stand-ups if you want to play with a battle mat. I mean, it's a lovely collector's item, but it's been out of print since, like, John Major was Prime Minister. And since the license has long since expired, it's not available as, like, a legal PDF purchase. But, I mean, these days, basically, the only reason games aren't available for legal purchase after their closing tends to be because of licensing issues. Well, fear not, because Spooktacular is actually available. That's the point. So... You can get it on Drive Through RPG, the PDF for seven ninety nine. That's dollars, or the PDF and a print on demand soft cover in a bundle for eleven ninety nine. I actually got George the soft cover for last Christmas, and I bought that from London based Leisure Games again for eleven ninety nine. You're not supposed to tell me how much it costs. <sighs> Sorry. So. This is the part where we summarise the background and premise of a game in our other elevator pitches. But if you're children of the 80s, you probably don't need the Ghostbusters concept explained to you. But for the benefit of Elsa's mum, if she's listening, we'll do it for her. Yeah, I mean, no, really. I mean, we once went back to visit my mum and George was wearing a Ghostbusters t-shirt with the Who You Gonna Call logo on it. And my mum just sort of peered at this t-shirt, spelling it out in her head, and then said in her best bamboozled boomer voice, Ho-ya! What's a ho-ya? Did she not also once refer to the band Placebo as Placebo? She did, yes. Yeah. So yeah, in this game, players are members of a paranormal investigation and elimination company. When you get right down to it, you're rent-a-kill but for ghosts, and it's exactly as unglamorous as that sounds. If a citizen finds themselves with a house full of pesky poltergeists and they have the necessary money, they can hire you and your crew to come in, zap them and cause only minimal property damage. Characters are equipped with cutting-edge science fiction-ish weapons, as well as knowledge of occult lore. That fits in with the original movie characters, because they are professors of parapsychology. They've got this breadth of knowledge of the supernatural as well as spores, moulds and fungus, of course. And on top of that, they shoot spectres with guns powered by unlicensed nuclear accelerators, which they wear as backpacks. So, as you'd expect from a Ghostbusters-inspired game, the vibe is a mixture of comedy and horror, but in a way that kids of any decade find hilarious. I mean, the threats that they face are serious, and the special effects are genuinely horrible, but there is this sort of sarcastic wit and this real warmth that runs throughout the movies and is found in the, the game as well. The spectacular book uses the line, 
that it's the juxtaposition of relatively normal characters with the bizarre circumstances of hunting ghosts. But yeah, in short, you wear boiler suits, you zap stuff, you get slimed, you hopefully bust some ghosts. So, characters and skills. All characters are going to be employees of a paranormal investigation company. It's not a licensed game, so it can't say you're the Ghostbusters. You can totally invent your own company, but you're basically the Ghostbusters. Your characters are defined by four main statistics. In spectacular, these are actions, brains, contact, and cool, which in a kind of traditional D&D style would be like strength in charisma and willpower save, I guess. These are rated from one to five. You have 12 points to spread around between those four stats as you see fit. And then within each of those four stats, you have an additional talent. So that's something like a skill or a specialization in other games. So when you're using this talent, your rating counts as three points higher. So like if I've got brains three and a talent of history, my brains count would be six for history related roles. There is also a D66 table of example talents for each stats. If you're stuck, well, won't lie, some are more useful than others. One of them is that you're good at eating a telephone. I mean, you never know. The only other stats are awesome points, or as they were called in the original Ghostbusters, brownie points. Now, these are an expendable resource that allow you to do cool stuff, which we'll elaborate on later. I mean, everything else in the character sheet is basically just more background and mechanical. You know, character motivation, character quirks, and of course, name. There's more D66 tables to help you generate random names for your characters, suspiciously including the first and last name of every major movie and cartoon Ghostbusters character. Yes, even the extreme Ghostbusters from the 90s. I'm as surprised as you are. So everything you needed to play the original Ghostbusters was inside the very snazzy yet very expensive box. But if you want to play spectacular, you will just need the following. So paper and pencils for your character sheets a pool of six-sided dice, one of which must be a distinct colour or pattern to the rest. So this is known as the ghost die or the spooky die, depending on which version of the game you're playing. Optional extras include a banging soundtrack of 80s classics in the background. Another optional extra, sticky labels to recreate the name tags and Ghostbusters logo from the boiler suits that players can then stick on themselves on their chest or their arm. And if you're an American listener and you can get a hold of Ecto Cooler, you are living the dream. We never got Ecto Cooler in Britain, which, for the benefit of British listeners, was a Ghostbusters-themed cartoned juice drink. Was it, like, bright green? Yes, it was bright green. I think it was some sort of, like, orangey citrus flavour, but it was, like, slimer green and had slimer on the box cover. Amazing. Yeah. Okay, game engine. So Spooktacular and Ghostbusters use basically the same engine. In short, when attempting any actions of note, you roll a number of six-sided dice equal to their stat number, plus three if you're using your talent. So your previous state, if you're trying to roll an intelligence thing and your brains was three, you'd roll three dice. If your history talent kicked in, you'd roll a further three dice, so six total. You want to roll as high as possible. So a really easy target number might be five for something like climbing a tree, whereas You might get to 20 or even higher for really challenging things like shooting a target at long range or eating a telephone. (laughs) But if you think back, though, if you really must eat that telephone, if you don't have enough dice to succeed the thing you want to do, this is where your awesome points come in. 
So before an action, you can spend awesome points to roll additional dice on a one-for-one -one basis. Expended awesome points are then recovered at the end of the session based on how well the group achieved your goals. And extra points are recovered for how well your character takes steps towards fulfilling their own personal motivation. However, as we mentioned, there is a different coloured dice than the rest of them. Anytime you roll dice, one of them must be that different coloured dice, the spooky dice or ghost dice. If you roll a six on that die, it counts as zero to your total. Any success or failure where you also rolled the spooky six will generate strangeness and complications. So for example, on a spooky fail at aforementioned climbing a tree, the tree might animate a la Harry Potter and grab you, or you might slip on ectoplasm that was dripping off the branches. However, on a spooky success at the same tree, You'd still maybe get to the top of the tree, but perhaps a, a nest of ravens would swarm around you. Now, this might sound vaguely familiar to experienced role players. That is because this D6 system ended up being used by West End Games as the framework for several other of their role-playing games, most notably the Star Wars role-playing game. Now, the Ghostbusters and Spooktacular version is much more straightforward. So like in Star Wars, there's a very long set of predetermined skills and advancement rules, whereas Ghostbusters has much more minimalist and the advancement rules are basically, do you have leftover awesome points? You can spend them to gain things. Combat and like opposed tasks are pretty much the same system. It's just that you're comparing your dice roll to the opponent's dice roll and the more that you beat the target number, the more, more you beat the defender by, the greater the damage or the greater your level of success. Damage dealt by weapons is extra d6 that you roll after successfully hitting something. So a frying pan might give you an extra two dice, a chainsaw might give you an extra four dice. And you don't exactly have hit points as such. Damage is dealt by removing points from your stats temporarily, meaning if you do get hit then things can go downhill really quickly. However, of course, you can spend an awesome point to negate damage if you want to. And I mean, the tone of the game is such people are more likely to get slimed or host they're not likely to get killed. No, no. And of course, if you've got a proton pack, or as it's known in spectacular to be like non-license specific, an etheric ray thrower, it's not enough to just damage a ghost, you have to trap it as well. So ghosts have two special stats that humans don't have. They have power and presence. Power is what they roll on for their supernatural abilities like telekinesis or what have you. That's telekinesis, George. <sighs> Moving on. And presence is just their hit point equivalent. If a ghost has zero presence points left, then a ghost trap can now suck it up. One proton pack will hold a ghost stationary, Two proton packs are required to move a ghost into the path of an open trap. But yeah, I mean, that's how you play the game. But the mechanics of this are really secondary to the actual game itself. I mean, most children of the 80s will be pretty delighted to get the opportunity to live out their childhood fantasy of being a ghostbuster. You get to spend a game shouting out, I ain't afraid of no ghost! You get to bust ghosts. You get to make proton pack noises to your little heart's content. And to be honest, this in and of itself is enough to sell the game to most players. 
It's very easy to set it in the city of your choice. So we play this game in our home city of Glasgow, but we set it in the late 80s, early 90s, so vaguely contemporary when the game was released. Our headquarters was underneath the St Enoch's shopping centre, to be exact, underneath an ice rink which hasn't been at the St Enoch's shopping centre for about 25 years. There are six sample cities listed in Spooktacular, but I mean, it'd be really easy to take any urban area you're familiar with and just spook it up a bit. I mean, another real positive for this game is the core engine is very simple. Players will very likely pick it up very quickly. It just uses standard D6 and simple adding. So it is very beginner friendly and probably quite kid friendly. The only complication is the ghost dice. But because it's such a visual thing, it's, it's quite easy in practice. It's a really solid, accessible engine, so it's easy to see why, even though the Ghostbusters games may have been consigned to history, the engine became the starting point for other games like Star Wars. I suppose it makes sense that licensed games, they're, they're probably going to be bought by or given as presents. They're more likely to be some people's first game, yeah. They're more likely to be bought by parents. Yeah, so like to novice gamers who are fans of that franchise, it needs to be something that's relatively easy to pick up and play. And again, the light comedic tone, it makes this quite a good palate cleansing game. Quite often we play it as a little one-off in between our more serious campaigns. And we very often bring it out at Halloween for a specifically Halloween bit of fun. Oh yeah, I mean, our group will often specifically request it for Halloween. We've played it multiple years now and it's a big hit every time. But that doesn't mean this game does not have negatives. I mean, while there are rules for campaign playing character advancement, it's... I think playing this game week in, week out might get a bit samey. I mean, we like it, but after playing it for one or two sessions, we kind of pack it away for six months to a year. I think it would be a little difficult to hold up a full campaign of and then you go bust another ghost. Yeah, I mean, the other thing, I mean, if you're a kind of power gamer or like a crunch head, like the system's pretty bare bones, so there's not much for you to interact with. I mean, the other thing, if you really like intricate battle maps or pages full of spell lists and spreadsheets of different types of pole arms, then this isn't really the game for you. But I mean, we're reaching here. I mean, this is one of those games... It just comes together, everything works, and it is a massive amount of fun. Oh, I have thought of one other problem for Ghostbusters. Uh, playing it gives you the risk that the inch high incel will turn up and give you his opinions on the 2016 film. Shh, he'll hear you. I mean, how have you felt that you've run this multiple times? How is it from a GM's point of view? I mean, from a GM's point of view, it's a really great low prep one-off. You need a customer or two with their ghost complaint and you can mostly just sit back and let carnage ensue. I mean, it just involves something as simple as driving to and parking at the site that you're going to bust the ghost it can be a whole half hour of little comedy shenanigans. I've purposely gone for that 80s, 90s setting. I mean, Spooktacular talks about the more modern era and how you can build in like the internet and modern ideas into your plots, but... I kind of like purposely hearkening back to that sort of late Thatcherite sort of time period because Ghostbusters' premise for me is kind of tangled up in that. 
The other thing about the period setting, it does allow for jokes and plots that you couldn't do elsewhere. So, for example, when we played, our Ghostbusters encountered a, like, Gozer-esque mega-demon who asked them to choose the form of the Destroyer. One character was an ex-coal miner and accidentally summoned up a gigantic ghostly Margaret Thatcher as his greatest fear. Yeah, in game terms, it was the stats plus Dave Puff Marshmallow Man with an additional handbag attack. Genuinely terrifying. Now, the book Spectacular itself, it's a very sweet little book. It's got adorable little cartoon illustrations. The design is really nice and clean. It's well laid out. It's easy to use. If you're lucky enough to be able to afford a copy of the original Ghostbusters box set, or you just luck into it in a second hand bin like we did, you get it's a much denser book with less art, but it does have a wealth of additional material, but you don't need it. I mean, like any licensed game, if you have a player that's not very familiar with the source material, that might be a little bit of an issue if that doesn't match up to the rest of the group. You know, you may have somebody who saw the film when they were a kid, they haven't thought about it in like 20 years. And there's other people in the group who are dropping quotes from the film every five minutes. They're talking about their favourite cartoon episodes. They're showing off their impressive Ghostbusters pin badge collection. It might be difficult to keep those two groups happy. Yeah, you don't want anyone to feel left out. I mean, Ghostbusters, as big as it is, it doesn't have as big or as diehard a fan base as other properties. Although, I mean, 2016 would have been told us otherwise. But you might need to read the room a little bit with your group. I mean, we, we do discuss groups where not everyone has the same level of investment in a setting in episode 16, if you want to go back and listen to that. And you can go back and listen to that now because we're basically done. Spectacular. It's... Highly recommended. Yeah. Great fun. So... If there's something strange in the neighbourhood, who are you going to call? He-Man! 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 It's a Ghostbusters 2 joke. Never. Move on. Moving on. Moving on. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Hi, how are you today? I hope you're having a wonderful day. Happy Friday! My name is Bailey Slytherin, and today is Friday, which means it's Fear, Felonies, and Flensing Friday! Shamasha! Shamasha! Shay! Shasha! Sha! If you're new here, hi! My name is Bailey Slytherin, and on Fridays, I sit down and I talk about a true crime story that's been heavy on my noggin, and I prepare a corpse for a ritual sacrifice at the same time! If you're interested in true crime and you like flensing, I would highly suggest you hit that subscribe button because I'm here for you on Fridays. So today we're talking about a total creep and his name was Harry Potter. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh my God, Bailey, isn't this guy some sort of like hero with like superpowers? Nay, nay. Nay, nay, I say. Harry James Potter was born in 1980 in England, and shortly after his birth, his parents were both brutally murdered in front of him. This obviously flipped some kind of switch in his young brain because even as a child, he behaved like a total sicko. This guy literally tortured his family for years. As an example, I mean, get this, he actually blew up his aunt. He blew her up, like, poof. 
He also began bullying and tormenting his cousin Dudley on a regular basis, including locking him in a room full of actual real-life snakes. And then this one time, Harry and one of his friends forced Dudley to act like a pig for their sick and twisted amusement. It's just disgusting. When Harry went to school, the disturbing behavior continued. I mean, don't get me started on his attitude towards women. He would date women for brief periods of time and then just drop them when he got bored. I think he was also really intimidated by women he felt were more intelligent than him because he would regularly yell at them and make vile comments. It's said that he would make some truly disgusting, fat-shaming comments about his peers, but the worst was when he yelled at his girlfriend Cho and got mad at her when she was grieving the actual death of her ex-boyfriend. Ugh, this guy sucks. As the years went by, Harry's behavior grew increasingly dark and twisted. One day, in a fit of rage, he actually trashed the headmaster's office. He went on an actual rampage, smashing priceless objects. He just had like a total lack of empathy for other people, you know? As time went by, he basically started like a cult at the school because this guy was charismatic and he had this like insatiable need for people to like him. He always had these like followers around him and they would meet in secret and sneak around in the dark but if they displeased him he would lash out in a fit of rage the worst incident was a fight between him and another pupil called Draco a fight so vicious that Draco was left with giant wounds and bloody gashes on his face and chest literally bleeding out on the floor Fortunately, a teacher found him before he died. But why was Harry not expelled instantly? Everyone was terrified of this guy, but nothing was done about his one-man wave of terror. Why didn't any of the teachers step in? Now, it's said that Harry was some sort of millionaire. Apparently, his parents had been, like, super rich or something. I don't know. But perhaps he was paying the teaching staff off to keep quiet. Suspish. Anyway, that, my friends, is the story of Harry Potter. There were so many people who suffered at the hands of this gross-ass dweeb. Don't even get me started on the fans. Harry Potter is one of those people who has so many fans, it's disgusting. I mean, get this. There are actually whole theme parks and merch dedicated to this guy. There are tours that take you around actual places he hung out in London and you can visit the real house where he tormented his victims. I've heard of people who take these tours or like bachelorette parties. I'm, I'm not even kidding you. The tour guide is all like, why are you interested in Harry Potter? And the girls are like, oh my god, he was so good looking and he was so misunderstood. And they try and like romanticize the whole thing. And there are like so many books. There are so many movies that are based off of this man's story. Seriously, people, get better idols. Anyway, that is the true story of Harry Potter. I hope you have a wonderful day today. You make good choices and I'll see you guys later. 
Bye. Warning. The following presentation contains references to various horror movie tropes, including murder, blood, abuse, animal cruelty, and eyeballs. Listener discretion is advised. Since we are in spooky season, I have got a spooky quiz for you. Ooh. And it involves a set of words that will be very familiar to British listeners of a certain age, but that we'll maybe need to explain to other people. And those are the words video nasty. Oh, so you, you don't mean like a nasty video, as in ya nasty. No, video nasties was a phrase coined in the 80s, I believe, by Mary Whitehouse, famous in Britain for being a religious conservative who self-appointed herself the arch-censor of British television and we were apparently okay with this. Basically the fun police. She was the fun police. And the early days of video had not many big name films on VHS or Betamax, but a lot of C-list films, often exploitation horror films, which... Usually low budget. Yeah, usually low budget, often foreign, often Italian or Spanish or what have you, often not actually as gory as the amazing artwork on the front cover would have you believe. But you saw them in the video shop as a kid and like you know, driller killer or whatever burns into your head from the picture, even though the film itself is a bit mince. Anyway, some of these films were actually put in a list by the British government as being too dangerous. <laughs> too hot to handle. Turns out a bunch of them are now released on DVD uncut and it's not a big deal. But um, I imagine they're pretty tame by today's standards. A lot of them are. However, that early days of home video is also the early days of role-playing. Another thing where there was at times... Some scandal, some excitement, some newspaper self-censoring types kicking about. Oh, you had, was it Bothered Against Dungeons and Dragons? Or was it Mothers Against Dungeons and Dragons? Yes. So I've said to relate these with a little quiz. I've got some titles for you, Ilsa. And they might be the titles of actual role-playing game products. Or they might be the titles of video nasties. <laughs> okay, so I have to decide which one's which. Which one's which. So you need to spot the... Titles of the titillating and terrifying films and tell them away from the real regarded role-playing games. Mm, okay, yeah, because obviously the two are just so dissimilar that I can't think of any, like, exploitative or violent things that happen in role-playing games. Absolutely not, absolutely not. If you're interested in video nasties, there are substantially better podcasters and writers to talk about it than me. But I've never let that stop me before. Why let experience get in the way of enthusiasm? Number one, Blood Feast. Blood Feast. Is that role-playing game or is it a nasty? So I assume when you say role-playing game, this includes supplements. It includes supplements and adventures. They have to be published. Just because I wrote an adventure at home called Die Screaming with Sharp Things in Your Head would not qualify. It has to have been actually released. That does scream video nasty to me yeah it's like probably some sort of like cannibal movie and i bet there was some sort of rumor where it was like an actual documentary of actual cannibals and someone actually died in it now yeah of course because these films often had this kind of mythology around yeah, them, like that they? snuff film I believe again 
journalist and podcaster Tim Worthington has spoken before about how the way the media talked about them, it wasn't just that the films were bad, it was like they were coming to get you. Mm. Like your copy of Night at the Manchester Morgue would personally murder you in your sleep. I should point out, in a previous quiz, Blood Nativity was a Vampire the Masquerade adventure. Oh, that is true. That is true. But are you set on Blood Blood Feast being a film? Oh, no, I think that's a film. And I I can imagine, like, the box cover art would have, like, somebody with, like, blood dripping from their mouth and, like, rolling eyes and Mary Whitehouse is standing there in the background going, Think of the children! You are correct. Blood Feast is a film from 1963, but apparently still too exciting for the 80s when it came out in video about a psychopathic caterer who kills women, uses their meats in the meals that he produces, and is doing some sort of great sacrifice to the Egyptian god Ishtar. <laughs> so he like bakes them into cakes yeah, or pretty what? Much. Or like grinds them up it into was, like mince and tatties? It, what? Ca- it can't be that bad because in 2005 it was released on DVD uncut and absolutely no one cared. Oh, I mean, I'm sure there was like three people out there who was like, oh, my collection's complete. Yeah, well, it is a note that not all of the video nasties ever saw re-release, but a lot of them did, and they usually did so with either very minor cuts or no cuts at all. I'm I'm sorry, sorry. did somebody somebody say blood feast? Oh, hi, Mailer Demon. Are we ordering takeaway? Oh, no, we're we're doing a quiz about video nasties. There was a, a movie in the 80s called Blood Feast. Oh. Well, it was a movie in the 60s, but it was out oh. in the 80s. You get you get the point. You get the point. Well, I'll, I mean, I'm here now. I might as well stick about and see what it is that so terrified the immortals of that era. Oh, you'll be good at this, surely. You must show lots of horror films in the nether realms. I mean... We show terrifying films in the nether realms, but not necessarily what you would call horror. Specially crafted films to scourge the soul, to drain the willpower, to cause one's skin to self-flens. Okay, moving on, everybody. Moving on. Number two. Horror on the Orient Express. Horror on the Orient Express. Are you sure there's not a third category of Doctor Who stories? <laughs> that was Mummy on the Orient Express. Ah, that's right, that's right. Is that the one where Jenna Coleman is dressed as a flapper girl? Yes, and there is the cover of Don't Stop Me Now. Yes, I really enjoyed that episode. The costumes were fab. It's also interesting because you are a little bit of a queen snob at times. I can be. I don't often like queen covers, but that one was pretty good. I'll I let it off. That, 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 it fitted. It very much fitted the tone of where that particular like season was going. Mm. Now, I feel like, obviously, that's a play on words of Murder on the Orient Express by Agatha Christie. So that's a murder mystery story. Yeah, and many times adapted for stage and screen. Mm. I just think that's maybe a little bit cerebral for the average video nasty. Um, I can't imagine they would have had the budget for the 20s costumes to really do it justice. So for that reason, I think I might go with a role-playing game in a kind of Agatha Christie-esque and then they were none, you know, somebody's on this train picking people off and the players are somehow caught up in this murder mystery adventure. That's your guess. You're guessing RPG. RPG. The answer's RPG. 
It's a Call of Cthulhu adventure. And it's, ah, that fits. It's actually quite a recent one. It's from 2015, and the cover art is a ghostly train made of screaming faces. Ooh. It apparently won the 2015 Any for Best Adventure. And it's worth noting that, like D&D, Call of Cthulhu is one of these games where whenever people are rhyming off the best adventures, they're almost always rhyming off ones from the early days. Mm. But this is one that does seem to have made a splash. It's one of the better regarded um, mm. adventures. And I think, it's, I think it's quite a big one. I think it's one of these, like, you can go along every stop on the Orient Express and encounter a hilarious adventure on the way. That's a cool setting, actually, because sometimes with Cthulhu stories you can get a little bit lost in where you're meant to go and what you're meant to do if there's too much sort of choice in the world. But if you are, pardon the pun, railroaded into, you know, you're on like a carriage, yeah. there is no escape. That kind of claustrophobia and creepiness would be, that sounds cool. Maybe you check it out. Number three, Pagan Shore. Pagan Shore. Is, is that like the, the ancient Scottish version of Jersey Shore? You're thinking like a reality telly show. Yeah. It's like, but... I'm Bodicea. I'm going to tell my man that I'm fed up of him hanging around with that whole Stacey. Now, I mean, obviously you have pagan horror movies. I'm thinking like the Wicker Man's the most obvious a, example. A very notable, yep, yep. And you're on the shore, they're on an island. They're on, you know, um, I don't know. I can't imagine what a role-playing game would be either, unless this was some sort of supplement about, like, I don't know, like the ancient Celts. Um, oh, this is a difficult one. If it is a role-playing game supplement, I imagine it's going to take some liberties, especially if it was written by a man. It's going to involve women dancing around with no clothes on, because it always does. Um, I'm sorry, have you ever been to Scotland? It's cold. Nude dancing in Scotland would be possible in a very small number of days. Sky clad, I believe they're called. Oh, my apologies. Um, uh, I think I'm going to go with role-playing game, but I'm not sure on this one. going to go RPG. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, Elsa, I've given it a lot of careful thought. I've decided to tell you that the answer you've given is right. Yes! You're doing your best Chris Tarrant impression here. Pagan Shore. You're going to kick yourself when I tell you this. Pendragon. Oh, Rex, because my head was sort of thinking um, Changeling. You know, I see because, the logic. But I, I couldn't quite yeah. see how it would fit. Pagan Shore is a supplement book that covers the other British Isle. It covers Ireland. It was released in... You're just careful what you're saying there, George. It's the British Isles! I'll have you know the Romans. Well, that's a proper fight starting sentence here in the Glasgow. The Romans referred to the islands as Hibernium Major and Hibernium Minor. And for some reason, Ireland was Hibernium Major. Make of that what you will. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but yeah, so I agree. It sounds like a film from the 70s where there's lots of nude ladies dancing. But this is actually one of several 90 supplements for Pendragons that focus in an area. So I've got Beyond the Wall which is the Scotland one. And I think it's Perilous Forest, which is the kind of Cambrian West of England one. And Pagan Shore covers the Irish specifically. Yeah, fair enough. Number four, Forest of Fear. Forest of Fear. Is it RPG or is it nasty? Oh, these are getting difficult now. 
I didn't actually have to try that hard to find modules that sounded like <laughs> video nasties. Because there could be so many RPGs, like like Changeling, like obviously the, the kind of babes in the wood, like getting lost. That could be uh, um, like a little Red Riding Hood kind of mm-hmm. game. It could be about like some like serial killer that lives in the woods. I mean, that would how many movies are there with that? Um, oh, I've got the blooming Shia LaBeouf song and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> You're walking through the forest. <laughs> you hear Shia LaBeouf. You're hoping not to be spotted by a domestic abuser, but there he comes, Shia LaBeouf. Oh, wow, updated to be topical, George. Like, okay, like, if, if you know idea what we're talking about, I'll link the video. It's it's worth watching, even though, like, he's cancelled and he's a terrible person. The video's really funny. But Forest of Fear. I, I think I'm actually going to go with Video Nasty on this because I think it's just that there's so many, like, haunted house in the wood or scary person that lives in the wood. Again, it's that claustrophobia and creepy element that if you're making a low budget horror film you just go to the wood and you don't need to pay for any like you know sets right you just you just blair witch it yeah totally so you're reckoning they blair witched it uh i think so but without the like narrative skill so i'm gonna say video nasty was forest of fear video nasty yes it was it's a comedy horror film from 1980 but like a few of the video nasties it's known by other titles because they were often foreign films, and because they were often obtained on slightly wonky licensing agreements, sometimes the same film got released multiple times with different titles. So this one is also known as Toxic Zombies or Blood Eaters, depending on where you are. Toxic Zombies is a well better name! Oh, Blood Eaters! Why didn't you say Blood Eaters? I'd have got that one straight away, one of my favourites. Oh, you, you got that in your collection? I certainly do. Actually, just when you were mentioning that movie, it reminded me of a graphic novel I bought relatively recently. It's called Through the Woods. So it's a collection of short stories by Emily Carroll that, as you'd imagine, are involving people going in and out of the woods and creepy whatnots happening. The artwork is really cool. There's a a little touch of the Junji Ito to it and the way that the the creepy faces are drawn. Um, Yeah. Just if you like uh, if you like scary stories, you like creepy illustrations, I can recommend that through the woods. Okay. Number five. Susperia. Susperia. Um, George. Yes? That's like one of the most famous horror movies of all time. Right. So it would be ridiculous to imagine that the British government put it in the video nasty list, wouldn't it? Uh, oh, I see. Right. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say like, it's regarded as a classic. I believe it was remade in the. Cl- yeah, we don't talk about that. We need, why? And why? Really? Like, what? Well, I don't understand the obsession with remaking horror films, especially. I mean, like the Psycho remake, which I believe the shot, shot for shot ninety uh-huh. Psycho remake. Because they got like you know a, f- a few days in and realized this cannot be improved upon in any way. But. Uh, if you're, doing, like, if you're doing something drastically different, I'm here to talk about it, right? Like, we went to see the remake of Fright Night. And that oh. was... A, that was at least... That had some different things going on in it. I mean, it it was 3D. I mean, some of the 3D effects were okay. I'm not going to lie. I did not need to see a giant David Tennant scratching his crotch in 3D. I'll say Colin Farrell as the sexy neighbour next door that your girlfriend and your mum 
want to have, even though he's obviously bad news, is a very good fit. But, but anyway, no, I'll get I get your remake point. No, it's it's generally a very bad idea. But 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 the point remains. Do you think Suspiria is a video nasty or a role playing game book? Maybe I don't know. Maybe Suspiria had an official role playing game. But no, I mean obviously these days Suspiria by Dario Argento is regarded as you know an absolute classic of the genre. I imagine at the time they would have just seen the sort of supernatural horror and gone, nope, 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 think of the children and stuck it on the nasty list, where it quite frankly would have felt in very strange company. Absolutely right. Oh, really? That's it. Because usually when we talk about the video nasties, we're talking about things like The Beast in Heat or Driller Killer. We're talking about, frankly, mince. But Suspiria... Saturn award-winning film, Suspiria, was on the list along with a couple of films that you would recognise like Dawn of the Dead, Last House on the Left, and The Evil Dead. The Evil Dead, I think, was a... Really? The Evil Dead was a particularly noteworthy one because there was... I think that was the one where there was a trial about it and, like, they had to tell the judge that the film had been released at cinemas and absolutely nobody had cared, and they were only prosecuting the people with the video. There certainly were several cases where films which were quite noteworthy and had notable cinema releases still end up in this list. And this is one of them. And it eventually came out with absolutely no cuts. Yeah, I mean, it's on Amazon right now. It's on Amazon. (laughs) It's on my watch list. And it stars Jessica Harper, also known as the other Janet from Shock Treatment. I'm not going to lie. I went into shock treatment with very low expectations. I dragged you into shock treatment. Shock treatment is the sequel to Rocky Horror Picture Show. Which is not on the video nasty list. No. This feels like a side rant we could go on for like 20 minutes in this podcast. But short version, shock treatment, we've been humming the soundtrack for weeks after we watched that. It's actually surprisingly good. Previously mentioned in this episode, Tim Worthington and his podcast mentioned it being worth re-evaluation. I pushed you heavily to reevaluate it and you were very sceptical, but I, we're both glad we did because it's definitely a film that is, I think, actually better with age. Mm, definitely. Number six, The Succubus Club. The Succubus Club. <laughs> oh, yes, I think I've been there. <laughs> Can you can you get me a VIP wristband or? I'll see I'll if see I can get you put onto the list. They're a bit funny about 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 uh, you know um how to put this um people with a pulse. People with more human appearances, yes. Okay. Very old fashioned that way. No, the succubus club. I wonder, could that be like a book for like a World of Darkness game, like Demon? Succubus or Succubi There are demon. There are other role playing games That had demons as protagonists Like Inomine Because mm. um, it sounds like ah, uh, it's That sounds to me more like The title of a video nasty That kind of deliberately Provocative, shocking You know It promises sexy ladies It promises that she's going to like Take you to bed then stab you Yeah, And I'm fine with that but I do wonder if that could also be a World of Darkness adventure supplement. Easily. 
where you maybe like your vampire characters go to like this weird underground club. Mm-hmm. Could be. Um, These both sound plausible. It's almost like this quiz is well constructed. Okay, I think it's too obvious a video nasty title. Mm-hmm. So I am going to go with RPG. You have chosen wisely. <sighs> it is a Vampire the Masquerade book. It is a very early Masquerade book. It's 1991. It's one of the first supplements ever for it. The Succubus Club is a vampire owned and frequented nightclub in Chicago. The book explains it, but also gives you like a half dozen little plot hooks to use this nightclub to kickstart your campaign. If you excuse me, I'm just I'm just sending them a message to see how they feel about me putting you on the guest list. The Succubus Club, of course, not to be confused with the infamous Hellfire Club. The Hellfire Club, who didn't actually do much demonic stuff. Um, no, I think it was mostly just getting drunk and blaspheming. Um, I believe the Earl of Sandwich was a notable member. What, the bloke that invented the sandwich? Maybe. He, he invented the sandwich and hung around the fake devil club. He was a character. He was a character. Number seven. The Prisoner of the Cannibal Gods. <laughs> the Prisoner of the Cannibal Gods. <laughs> okay, see when you're talking about obvious video nasty titles. You see um, that? You don't think 1970s D&D adventure? I mean, or maybe it was just like a mistranslation of like a Harry Potter book. Harry Potter and the Prisoner of the Cannibal Gods. So it sounds like you're very strongly feeling this is a a film. This sounds to be not just a video nasty, but a sequel. Oh, so you think it's like the return to the Cannibal Gods Island? Yeah, and yeah, this sounds to me like part of like a franchise of like diminishing returns. But at this point, we may be at like film three. Yeah. I'll say video nasty. It is a nasty. It's not a sequel, but it is one of these ones with multiple titles due to translations and international releases. So it was sometimes the prisoner of the cannibal god, sometimes the slave of the cannibal god, sometimes the mountain of the cannibal god. It's 1978 Italian film starring... Ursula Andress. Oh, wow. Yeah, none of your rubbish here. That's Ursula Andress, as in Honey Rider, the first major James Bond girl from Doctor No, and also She, the Hammer Horror film. As in She Who Must Be Obeyed. As in She Who Must Be Obeyed. Aisha. Funny story. <laughs> yes. So, I, <laughs> I didn't do this, I might point out. George did this all on his own. When I phone George... It flashes up. He changed my name to She Who Must Be Obeyed. That That is a thing that happened, yes. I didn't ask him to do that. Anyway, this I mean, is, he's right. This is not a good film, okay? Oh, it, it, it's really not. The people who made this one came down to our lot. Oh, dear. Look, look, the graphic violence is one thing and the racism is another, but animals were hard. Oh, oh, not all about that. No, 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 no. I, including a scene where something terrible like a monkey is thrown at a snake. And no, it's a monkey oh, and a snake. Yeah, it no. was... It no was a dis- different time. No disrespect to my ancestral homeland of Italy. If there's one thing that sums up 70s films, it's, I've got a monkey and a snake. Want to watch them kill each other? Yeah, I mean, Mary Whitehouse might have been on to something <laughs> there, as much as it pains me to say it. Number eight, Mansion of the Doomed. Mansion of the Doomed. I mean, to be honest, that sounds like a metal band. 
Hello, we are Mansion of the Dudes. I mean, I don't know if it'd be one of those metal bands that's got a logo in such a spiky font that you actually can't read it. I mean, I see them maybe more as slightly sort of navel-gazing, kind of like gloomy types, like, uh, like the Twilight Sad or something. Like the Twilight Sad. Uh, I mean, I really want to like them because they're, they're Scottish. Scottish. I really just don't. I'm, apologies to any Twilight Sad like stands who are listening to us. I've seen them twice because they were supporting The Cure. I just, I wasn't for it. I mean, my main recollection is that they'd been supporting for about 20 minutes and you and I and Duncan, who's with us, we all looked at each other and went, has a new song started yet? This just feels like... They're all just mopey. Anyway, anyway, enough music criticism, enough snooty rock journalism. Number eight, Mansion of the Doomed. Mansion of the Doomed. Um, I would say... Again, that sounds a bit... If it was a horror film, it would be more a kind of hammer horror film. Yep. And there would be, like, at least one Playboy bunny, like, running around in a see-through nighty. You know, like, Peter Cushing would be there, you know, like... Uh, it, yeah, it just sounds too classy. Like, you know, obviously in that way that hammer horror films are trashy, yeah. yet classy. But remember the list included Suspiria. Ah. Uh, but... Yeah, I think it, if it was a horror film, I think it wouldn't be violent or graphic enough to end up on the list. So for that reason, I think I'm going to go for RPG. RPG module or adventure. I can see that as a, as a Ravenloft-esque type I game. You. I see your logic. It's wrong, but I see your logic. Oh, I was doing so well. It's a 1976 horror film, Elsa, and it was so dangerous, so taboo, so disgusting. That it came out in 2000 as a 15. Oh, right. That's how dangerous the oh, film was. Oh, dear. It's got a bloke, right? And he's cutting people's eyes out because his daughter's blind. And he thinks he can give her her sight back if he just gives her an eye transplant. Oh, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I think we're going to have to put at least one content warning on this section. <laughs> Look, it's not my fault. You can't really summarise horror films without a bit of this, guys. Okay, they're not... It's not going to... Although, again... It's a 15, so clearly the eye cutting is not that graphic. Mm. Although, if you do want a kind of horror-esque movie that involves, like, fake eyeballs, I think we've got to mention Repo the Genetic Opera here. I mean, it's not a great film. It's trying a bit too hard to be Rocky Horror. Yeah, and it, and it fails, but it has got some fabulous moments. And Paris Hilton is okay in it. And Sarah Brightman is a blind goth lady. Yeah, and Anthony Stewart Head in leather and he sings. Yeah. It's worth it for that. But yeah, so I'm afraid that's your first error, Elsa, but you're still seven up. Boo. Number nine. Deep Horizon. Deep Horizon. I feel like I should know that. I mean, obviously, Event Horizon is a creepy film that had did not have actual pornographic actors in it. You know, in that scene. I think it might have. Obviously very heavily cut in order to get released. Yes, because of all the sort of Hellraiser-y yeah. graphic stuff. Deep Horizon. Deep. I feel like I I feel like that is a movie. And I feel like I've seen posters for it. <laughs> but I can't call them to mind. Now, the only thing that might mean it's a problem else remember that Event Horizon is much later than the mm. video nasty period. Yeah. No, it's just that just so it's that got in my head. 
Um, yeah, I, that to me sounds more like a movie title. Yeah. So you're going to say nasty. Yeah. You're going to say nasty. I am. You've said nasty. I have said nasty and I will say it again. Nasty. It's not a nasty. Oh, it's no. RPG. It was released in 2001 by Wizards of the Coast and it is an early third dead D&D adventure. Wizards released like a basically about, I forget exactly how many now. It's like eight to 12 adventures which take your character from zero to level 20. And this is, I think, about level 12 or 13 or something. Um, it's got salamanders, it's got beholders, and it's got bat-like people called Desmodus. Desmodus, D-E-S-M-O-D-U-S. They're in the Monster Manual too as well. I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Nobody talks much about this adventure run the Wizards of the Coast did. They are okay. Mm. If they were a colour, they'd be beige. Oh, wow. They needed to be there so they could say, our new game's got a run of adventures. But nobody ever gets that excited about them. Oh, well. Oh, I'm going to need to claw this back. Mailer Demon, can you help me with the last one? Actually, I helped in another way. What do you mean? Well, usually the quizzes are ten, yes. Uh-huh. But it is my time. The time of Samhain. And so, there are thirteen questions. Ooh! Okay, okay, I've got time. How did three more things appear on my list? All right, never mind, we're here now. Uh, why are they slightly red and sticky? The ink, is, is that no, tobacco no, sauce? Just leave it, just leave it, just leave it. Let the, the sooner this is done, the sooner I can go get the therapy that I require. Number ten. The blue eyes of the broken doll. The blue eyes of the broken doll. Oh, now that's a creepy one. That makes me think, because, you know, that puts me in mind of Promethean. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, yeah. Where, also, when, when we played Promethean, my character was a doll that had come to life. And the game does obviously mention, like, Pinocchio as an inspiration for, like, trying to be a real boy. Mm. So there's kind of, me- you're, you're all metaphorical dolls. Mm-hmm. Ooh. That does, that, yeah, that sounds, that sounds very, again, it sounds creepy rather than overtly schlocky. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go with RPG. It's not going so well for you now, oh. Elsa. This is a 1975 Spanish film, and the poster has a picture of a broken doll. And no, 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 I'm out. It looks 100% of all the films on this list. It looks the creepiest. Oh, no, no, absolutely not. I mean, in real in real life, I genuinely have a phobia of dolls. I'm sure it's got some fancy, like, Greek name, but, you know, any kind of doll or mannequin or plastic person I oh since I was a kid I am terrified of them Edinburgh has a museum of childhood which has an entire floor dedicated to dolls and I have never seen you move so quickly as getting all the way through that floor without looking oh, at anything oh yeah I mean George literally had to like drag me through with my eyes closed but let's let's bounce it back let's bounce it back number 11 the mutant experience the mutant experience the mutant experience um, also sounds like a band. It it does. Like, hello, we are the Mutant Experience, supporting Mansion of the Doomed. <laughs> so the Mutant Experience. So do you think that is a role playing game book, or do you think that is a film? I I think that sounds quite cinematic. I think I'm gonna go for video nasty. I think yeah, there'd be some really awful liquid latex effect in this one Hmm. what this does have is about a hundred odd pages because it's a book oh 
I started so strong. This was a supplement for paranoia. To be exact, it's the 2000s era Paranoia XP, which then got a legal threat from Microsoft, so just changed its name to Paranoia. And it was expanded out on mutant powers. It gave additional mutant powers and stuff that your characters could have and extra rules for what you could do with them. But yeah, it's a book all about mutants for role-playing games. Sorry. Fair enough. Number 12, Realm of the Ice Queen. Realm of the Ice Queen. Realm of the Ice Queen. Um, what, 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 you mean Frozen 2? I don't think any Disney films were on were on the video nasty list. Although, I've seen The Black Hole. I was that about to say, well should be. I was about to say, The Black Cauldron, The Black Hole could make a stab at it. I mean, and what's it called? Fox and the Hound traumatised me. Oh, Return to Oz. That was then oh, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the word realm sounds a little bit D&D-esque to me. Like some sort of world building where like people well, have got ice power. You imagine like it's a book explaining a country or something. Uh-huh. And it's populated by, you know, some sort of maybe like elven people. Yeah. Or some sort of magic users with ice powers. Or there's been some, you know, an ice queen's moved in and sort of taken over and you need to go and like free the natives yep. in, you know, in this village or whatever. So that's where we're yeah, going Yeah, I think here. I'm going to go with RPG. You are correct! Oh, thank goodness. It is for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. The Ice Queen, um, also known as the Tsarina, is the head of a country called Kislev, which is generically Eastern European, and the capital city, for example, is called Prague. P-R-A-A-G. Prague. And they fill the gen... Lots of Russian stereotypes abound. But yeah, this book covers... Playing there, playing characters from there, the special magic and monsters and stuff that come from there. Um, although the focus in Warhammer fantasy was always on the more Western European equivalent, they were always there as like an ally for some other people to pull upon. You couldn't, it would be difficult to play a full Kislev army, but you could definitely have Kislev characters turn up. Number 13. F for Satan. F for Satan. I'm sorry, what? George! It's the name of the thing! Absolute disgrace. My mum listens to this podcast. How dare you besmirch this wonderful, dark and grim day of death and destruction with such potty-mouthed language. Now, that has got video nasty written all over it, and it's probably Italian as well. You've just got one issue, Elsa. Could they release a film in the 80s whose title was Something for Satan, where the something rhymes with luck? Um, no, but if the title was in Italian... That is true. They probably could have gotten away with it. There is a noteworthy film of that with in French, isn't it, where it's Space Moi, I think it is. Oh, is that not Kiss Me? That's an interpretation of that sentence. But I think in colloquial French, it means something else. Oh, right. <laughs> Apologies to French listeners at work. We'll put up la warning du content. <laughs> <laughs> did you do your uh, your higher French? I did first and second year French. I did, standard, right. <laughs> I did, I did standard grade German. I was going to say it shows. Anyway, number 13. What are you going with here? Are you going with nasty that or are you going with RPG? got to be a video nasty. It's got to be a video nasty. Yes, that is my final answer. I do not wish to phone a friend. Um, mistress. Yeah? 
It's not. Oh, come on! The provocative title means it can only come from Lamentations of the Flame Princess, a company and game system run by James Raggy IV, who is a famed RPG edgelord, heavy metal snob, fan of Jordan Peterson. Oh, I hate him already. There's so many trigger warnings for all his stuff, but especially this. You know, he, the, his company did release an adventure which we've played, uh, Blood in the Chocolate. Oh, no, that is good, actually. But this particular set adventure, Something for Satan, um, is, even by his standards, particularly trollish, and it involves a giant demon shaped like a human organ. Oh, dear. I mean, is this, is, is this the guy who writes for 13-year-old boys? Because, I mean, really, who else is going to think... Oh. I'm more offended by his opinion on LP transfers of metal albums, to be honest with you, but that's neither here nor there. Anyway, there you go. At the end of this chaos, you've managed 8 out of 13. Oh, I mean, I suppose that's relatively passable. Uh, what do you think, Mailer Demon? Oh, oh I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just, 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 I'm just, I'm just speaking to the Succubus Club. Club. Can I just, I just check? check? Do you have I any have blood diseases? And if not, would you like any? Um, I don't know if I want to go to this club anymore. Well, it's time to wrap up the episode, so here comes the outro admin. Don't forget to subscribe on the podcast app of your choice to get notified as soon as we upload future episodes. We'd also really appreciate if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts or Podcast Addict to help other people find the show. You can contact us via email on tildicepodcast at gmail.com with any questions or feedback you might have for us. We'd love to know what you want to hear in future episodes. You can also follow and message us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Tildice Podcast, where Twike the Social Goblin posts additional links and content. Our theme tune is Funny Adventures by Winnie the Mook, and additional music was Metal by Alexander Nakarada. Those are both used under a Creative Commons Attribution license. We also used The Evil Inside by Dark Fantasy Studio, that was used under a paid license. Our logo was created by Neil Slorrance. His website is neilslawrence.com. If you enjoyed our content and you want to help support the show, you can buy us a virtual coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash podcast. Money earned will be put towards hosting fees, new recording equipment, and generally keeping the Tildice lights on. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again in a fortnight's time for another eclectically educational episode. Happy Halloween! Bye! Bye.